The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only and are not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today, on the lab report, have you heard of SIBO? Yeah, I have. Have you heard of a stool test? I'm familiar. Is there a connection between the two? Hmm. We'll explore it. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Did your family buy an Atari when it came out? Oh, yeah, we had an Atari. You had an Atari? Yep, Pac-Man, uh-huh. Donkey Kong, yeah. Space Invaders. Oh, yeah. Hello! Hey, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How are you today? I'm crushing it as per usual. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Good. Are you ever not crushing it? <laughs> not really. Okay. Wow. <laughs> um, this is a podcast. It's called The Lab Report, and it's brought to you by Genova Diagnostics, where we talk about things like functional medicine, specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, and the like. Yeah, and thank you so much for joining us. And if you're new, welcome. If you're returning, thanks. And I hope everyone will go to iTunes or Spotify and maybe subscribe to the show. Yeah, do that. That helps. Yeah. That helps when you subscribe and you share this. And, and rate uh, and review and When you feedback. do those things, yeah. you know, if, it helps with the metrics, as they mm. say in the biz. <laughs> Are we in the biz? what they say in the biz. Um, <laughs> We're kind of around the biz. We're like you know what I mean? peripheral biz. We're like B celeb biz or C, <laughs> D, somewhere in the B through D biz, in the biz celeb. On, on the biz scale. Yes, exactly. Well, what if people have feedback about our biz? They can send that feedback to podcast at gdx.net. That's our email address. You can tell us where you think we land in the whole spectrum of biz. Well, you know what I've been thinking, Michael? What's that? In the past several episodes, we've really like really dove into some biochemistry pretty heavy. Yeah, I know. You think people like zoned out? No, I don't. I think people love biochemistry. No, I think we love biochemistry. I'm asking about the actual listeners. Well, I speak for the listener. (laughs) You're a man of the people. (laughs) I'm a man of the people. The people want the biochem. Okay. We we can continue to offer tons of biochem because we have tons of it that we have not yet shared. However, maybe we can pull this into GI a little bit today and talk a little bit about the GI tract. I think that's a great idea. We've been meaning to get back to the GI tract and talk about some of the elements there. And, uh, you know... When I think about GI function, there's a couple main things. There's things like IBS, there's IBD, and there's some overlap of concern between IBS and SIBO, right? Irritable bowel syndrome. Yes. And small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Thank you for that. And so when we think about what are some of the things that can contribute to GI symptoms, SIBO is one of them. Mm -hmm. And we get a lot of questions about SIBO. Yeah, and I think the overarching concept is that Something like IBS is such an umbrella term. It's really just describing all of these symptoms that are vague and can overlap with many things as you're describing, like SIBO. So when we think about IBS or SIBO, we think about things like bloating and constipation, which are pretty vague. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, (laughs) it's such an umbrella term. It's like you could have constipation or you could have diarrhea. Right. Or you could just have (laughs) transit time that changes. Mix. IBS mixed, meaning it kind of goes both directions. Or you could just have pain or you could have pain with bowel movements without bowel movements. You could have intermittent pain. It's really... That term is just ridiculous. It's It's ridiculous. Is your GI track not perfect? You've got IBS. That's such a ridiculous term. So if we're going to really dive into some of the 
underlying root causes of IBS. SIBO is one of them, which is why the symptoms do overlap. So let's start by talking a little bit about what SIBO is for those who maybe didn't catch the SIBO episode and are, are new to functional medicine and new to this term. First of all, you can go back and listen to the SIBO episode. There's a little plug. There it is. But what we're talking about here is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And we all know that our large intestine is housed to hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of bacteria called the commensal bacteria. Mm-hmm. And there's ordinarily not as many bacteria in the small intestine for many reasons. All right, Michael, what are those reasons? Well, there's a few things that contribute to just overall lower levels of bacteria in the small intestine. Um, the acidity of the chyme that comes from the from the stomach, right? You've got all this stomach acid mm-hmm. uh, that helps you break down the food in the stomach, and then that sort of enters the small intestine, and the acidity of that uh, limits the growth of bacteria in the small intestine, We also have this system called the migrating motor complex, um, which is responsible for sort of like clearing out the small intestine in between meals. Like a street sweeper. Yeah, exactly. And it's a pretty forceful movement that actually, it doesn't sterilize the small intestine, but it does reduce the bacterial count in the small intestine. So Mm -hmm. those are a couple factors that, that contribute to lower levels. But let me ask you a question. Go ahead. Why do we want lower levels of bacteria in the small intestine? Well, we depend on the small intestine and all of the surface area in the small intestine to digest and reabsorb our food. And I think if there's a ton of bacteria up there, they're kind of in the way and they're kind of getting in the in the good work of the digestion and absorption that's supposed to happen there. Mucking up the works. That's it. Fermenting things that we need, oh. like bile acids, interrupting our absorption of amino acids by fermenting them into other products. Get out of here, just bugs. blocking stuff Get out of here. And in fact... There is something called the ileocecal valve, which actually blocks the bacteria from the large intestine, blocks them from getting into the small intestine. So it's actually like a gatekeeper there. Yeah, physical barrier. Yeah. It's important. But what we're talking about with SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is that some of the bacteria make their way up into the small intestine and start mucking things up. Yeah, so when they start mucking things up and you've got a patient that comes in, what sort of symptoms would you be looking for if you're suspicious of SIBO? Well, I think the one that most people think about is bloating, right? Yeah. Like metabagastric fullness right after eating. Certainly bloating. You can think about changes in transit time, Mm -hmm. right? Because these bacteria, they can ferment different products that could have an effect on transit time. Um, I also think about reflux. You know, it's it's making me think, I was having this conversation with Travis earlier. Yeah. Well, hang on, Michael. Yeah. People don't know who Travis is. You need to explain No, it's that. true. Okay, so Travis is our, he's sort of like our sound guy, sort of like our engineer slash producer. He's kind of responsible for mm-hmm. the mechanical workings of this. And just for the record, he, he's a little neurotic, right? A I little. Mean, he's a little. Just a little. Persnickety about mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely does not enjoy us talking about him. Like, I mean, I'm just looking at his face right now. <laughs> And he's, he's not he's happy not about happy. what's happening right now. <laughs> but we were talking about his reflux. And mm-hmm. he's had this reflux for a long period of time. You know, and it gets me to thinking, uh-huh. is it possible that poor Travis has SIBO? Yeah, well, it does make one wonder, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you could at least start with something like a GI stool test to cast a wide net, figure out what's going on in someone's GI tract, and then get some maybe insight. Yeah. If someone has IBS, we always recommend starting with the GI effects because it does cover the most ground as far as ruling things out or ruling them in. But as it relates to SIBO, do you really think the stool test is the best way to go there, Michael? 
I think you're always going to want to let clinical presentation be your guide. Like mm-hmm. if you've got someone who comes into your office and they've got every single hallmark sign of SIBO, mm-hmm. you might start with a SIBO breath test first or evaluate them for SIBO first. But if there's other GI things going on and, and you just really want to get a wide view of what might be going on, what some of the functional disturbances might be in this person's GI tract, I think it makes sense to start with a stool test. And although the stool test isn't definitively diagnostic of SIBO, there are a lot of patterns that we see on some of the results of the GI effects that lead us down the path of SIBO. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, there's always that caveat of the GI stool test is more so a reflection of large Mm -hmm. intestinal activity and large intestinal microbiome. Uh, It could give you some insight into the small intestine, but it's not... It's not really made to do that. But knowing that it's somewhat of a reflection of large and small intestine and overall gut health, there are some patterns that we think of that point us in the direction of SIBO, that sort of hint at SIBO, and uh, I think that's worth going into. So, Patty, if you've got somebody's GI effects results in front of you Mm -hmm. and you're suspicious of SIBO, Mm -hmm. what might you look at? There's many things. I think the first thing I look at is usually the overall commensal abundance, right? Because if you can consider that, although it's a reflection of the large intestine, it can also reflect the small intestine. We're talking about an overgrowth of bacteria. So I look at the overall abundance. If it's higher than that of the healthy cohort, it might lead you down an overgrowth path. Yeah. And you have to keep in mind that if you are aware the patient was supplementing with prebiotics, probiotics, that could also be another explanation for why their total commensal abundance might be high. What else? Well, the other thing I think about, I always try to reason it out functionally, like what does the small intestine do? And that's kind of where all of our digestion and absorption takes place. So I always zero in on the section on the GI effects that looks at biomarkers around digestion and absorption. Uh So for example... A lot of our protein gets broken down and reabsorbed through the small intestine. So we should not be seeing a lot of protein products make their way into the large intestine to be fermented. So if I say see really high products of protein breakdown, it's one of the things on my differential. So you're saying the bacteria are interfering with protein digestion and absorption, and therefore it's not... it's proportionally making its way to the large intestine for fermentation. But the other thing is, if you do have a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, those bacteria could also be fermenting the protein in the small intestine too. So they're interrupting with absorption and by fermenting it, essentially. So a couple reasons why you might see elevated products of protein breakdown uh, in a SIBO patient. Absolutely. And the other thing that happens in the small intestine is the digestion and absorption of fats, uh-huh. right? And so you think if there's bacteria taking up all the surface area in the small intestine, you might be maldigesting and reabsorbing fats, Right. But the other piece of this is that bacteria in the small intestine, bacteria in the small intestine can actually deconjugate bile salts, which are released from your gallbladder to help you digest fats. Right. So if they're breaking down the bile salts, then you're not absorbing fat as much. Mm -hmm. And if you're not absorbing fat, you might expect to see the end products of fat absorption, which are the long chain fatty acids and phospholipids, proportionally higher. Mm hmm. The other marker in that section, however, is pancreatic elastase 1. Oh, yeah. And this is an interesting one as well. Right. So pancreatic elastase is a marker that tells us about how well digestive enzyme functioning is occurring. 
right? It's exocrine, pancreatic function, uh, proteases, things like that. It's a reflection of protease secretion. So we tend to look at it and see it lower in pancreatic insufficiency, such as in things like chronic alcohol use or diabetes or cystic fibrosis, um, chronic inflammation. All these things can have an impact on lowering our pancreatic output. But as it turns out, SIBO might actually do that as well. And um, we have some literature that suggests that. And, you know, when we have literature, hmm. sometimes it's a good place to stop and say, what do we think we know? All right, Patty, why don't you start over there? And wh- what do you got in front of you? Well, I will say that uh, although we usually just pick one paper when we do, what do we think we know? I think this one calls for two papers. This it is does. a twofer. Yep. And the first paper we're going to talk about here was written back in 2010 by Lapinga et al. And it's entitled Small Intestinal Bacterial Overgrowth, Histopathologic Features and Clinical Correlates in an Underrecognized Entity. Hmm. Hmm. And we know that SIBO is more and more prevalent. And so they're trying to find out what's the histopathologic features if you were to do a a biopsy, let's say, of this. And so they got patients in whom SIBO was suspected. They did actual intestinal aspirates via endoscopy to look for the colony forming units of bacteria to confirm which is the official gold standard for SIBO although remarkably invasive it is the gold standard not something that you can do at your private practice so they went and actually did the gold standard to diagnose SIBO patients then they actually did endoscopic biopsy of the duodenum and what they found is that the condition of having SIBO lends itself to some damage right in the villa, the, the microvilli of the small intestine. So they're finding that villus blunting and villus atrophy is far more common in patients with SIBO. And you might be asking yourself, why do we care about that? And it really leads into the second article we're going to talk about here. Actually, the thing I was wondering is, how much did they pay these people? <laughs> I hope it was enough, because that just does not seem like a fun study to be a part of. No kidding, but... It is important. It's important information that was kind of a game changer because it then leads to the second article. Yeah, and this second article, which is titled Subclinical Exocrine Pancreatic Dysfunction Resulting from Decreased Cholecystokinin Secretion in the Presence of Intestinal Villus Atrophy. (sighs) That (laughs) was produced, published, I should say, in 2006 and was written by Nusha Arvanitakis et al., uh, and what they looked at here was participants' plasma cholecystokinin levels in relationship to their small bowel biopsies. How come? Well, because they were trying to discover, is there a connection between villus atrophy and overall pancreatic output? And they did find a correlation in that the greater the degree of villus atrophy, the, there was decreased plasma cholecystokinin, which then has a negative feedback mechanism secre- suppressing pancreatic function. And so, and and that was actually restored when the uh, villus, when the, the lining of the small bowel was restored. So to put that together, in essence, SIBO can cause villus atrophy. Yes. Villus atrophy can alter cholecystokinin signaling back to the pancreas, therefore lowering pancreatic elastase 1. And that's what we think we know. Well, and Patty, I'll add this one note to Mm -hmm. how SIBO relates to pancreatic elastase because, at least empirically, we do 
commonly see pancreatic elastase levels a little bit lower on the GI effects in patients who have SIBO, mm -hmm. but we don't normally see it all the way down into, say, the yellow or the red area where we're starting to diagnose pancreat true pancreatic insufficiency. Yeah, so, so it seems to be having some effect, but um, it, you know, it's, it's a little bit in that gray area. Yeah, if it's that low, you should be looking at all aspects and say, make sure you're not missing something there. Exactly. Okay, so we're agreeing that the gold standard is endoscopic aspiration, but most people use the breath test. But when you do a stool test, there are some patterns that make us suspicious for SIBO. Right. We talked about having a really high commensal bacteria abundance. We talked about having elevated products of protein breakdown and fecal fats, mm -hmm. and maybe a little bit lower PE1 or pancreatic elastase 1. But what about the flip side of that, Michael? What happens with some of the metabolites? Oh, yeah. Right. Oh. So <laughs> this is where we're talking about where there's smoke, there's fire. Right. Because these metabolites, this, the section of bacterial metabolites, such as short-chain fatty acids and beta-glucuronidase, these are products of bacteria. Stuff the bugs make. Exactly. And so if you've got a bunch of bugs... Makes sense. You would expect mm. to find a lot of the stuff the bugs make. And those are short-chain fatty acids and beta-glucuronidase, like I just said. And so that's another area where you might s see elevations, both with the short-chain fatty acids. And keep in mind, those products of protein breakdown that you were mentioning earlier, mm -hmm. those are also short-chain fatty acids, technically. Yeah. So if you see a correlation with high products of protein breakdown and high short-chain fatty acids, you might be saying, man, there's a lot of bacterial products here. And uh, if nothing else, this might be playing a role in why my patient feels so bloated all the time. Okay, so this pattern, lots of stuff the bugs make, mm -hmm. lower pancreatic function, higher fecal fats, right? Yeah. And we talked about high levels of commensal bacteria. Anything about the commensal bacteria themselves, like individual bacteria that stand out to you? Oh, that's such a great question. And I think first and foremost, the one specific commensal bacteria that we always think about as it relates to constipation and bloating is Methanobrevibacter smithii. The scary one. <laughs> but I think what's important to note is we talk about it because it makes methane, and we know that methane in the GI tract can slow transit. And when we see a high amount of Methanobrevibacter smithii in a patient who has a pattern similar to what we're describing and is constipated or bloated, we get very concerned. And I think it's important to make a distinction here between two different types of overgrowth, Michael. Yes. Right? There's methane predominant. Yes. Hydrogen predominant. Yes. Exactly. And with those two different things, you have two different clinical presentations often. If you have a methane predominant overgrowth, what is also referred to as intestinal methanogen overgrowth, IMO, this tends to be associated with slow transit time constipation, as you mentioned, because of that effect of methane on directly on transit time and peristalsis. Okay, so high levels of methanobrevibacter smithii on the GI effects makes you look twice and really dive into the clinical symptomatology, right? But what Genova has also designed and is part of the test is something called the methane dysbiosis score. Yeah, and it's really cool. What we did was we compared people who had done a GI effect stool test at the same time as a SIBO test. And what we found was that there was, in fact, a pattern of commensal bacteria and even biomarker pattern that ultimately predicted 
higher methane production in the uh, in the breath. And so we developed an algorithm called this methane dysbiosis score, and it's right there on page two of the GIFX results. So you can always take a look at that, and that will lead you down the path of being suspicious of this IMO. So what else from a bacterial perspective, like commensal bacteria, or maybe even what we see in the culture analysis? Yeah, and this is somewhat empiric in the sense that we only... We, we look at this test literally all day long and talk about it to clinicians all day long. So a pattern that we see in our department is in a patient in whom the clinician is suspicious of SIBO and has a pattern as we're describing it. Sometimes on that culture page, we see a significant amount of bacteria grow out. Ne not necessarily pathogens. They could be potential pathogens or even just aerobic bacteria. So if you see a lot of bacteria grow out on that page... We're suspicious in looking at some of these other patterns in clinical presentation as well. Yeah, and when you say a lot, I mean, it's common to see like two, three bacteria grow out in that additional bacteria section, mm -hmm. but like five, six, seven bacteria growing out there, that's that's a little bit more unusual. It makes so, us look twice, yeah. Yeah, and, and so sometimes we'll, we'll ask, start asking questions about signs and symptoms of SIBO there. And speaking of asking questions. Oh, no. We've got a few questions that came in. Oh, no. Question of the day. That's just ridiculous. It's <laughs> <laughs> just so ridiculous. It's my brand. <laughs> All right. So, Michael, let's yeah. ask the question of the day here. And it's a good one, to be honest. We talk all the time in functional medicine and here at Genova about methane slowing transit time. Yeah. The question is, how does methane slow transit time? Hmm. Yeah, that is a good question. Although, to be fair, they're, they're pretty much all good. I mean, they our are. listeners are on it. They, have some they really write interesting some good questions. questions. Yeah. So methane and transit time, the proposed mechanism there is that methane actually s suppresses postprandial serotonin production. Hmm. And so we know that serotonin, a ton of our serotonin is made in the GI tract. Some estimate something like 95% of our serotonin is from the GI tract. Yeah, the, it's made by the enterochromaffin cells in our gut. Mm -hmm. And so serotonin stimulates peristalsis. And if you're not familiar, peristalsis is essentially the muscle contraction that moves things along your GI tract. Um, and so serotonin stimulates that. And that's the connection. If you have suppressed serotonin production postprandially because of methane, then it's going to slow transit time in general, leading towards constipation. Now, there's an interesting thing here that serotonin also does in the GI tract, where it has interactions with the immune system. Uh, and so in the GI tract, serotonin is a big mediator for things like eosinophil and neutrophil recruitment, B cell regulation. It attracts dendritic cells. And so there's maybe some concern that with higher methane production leading to lower serotonin production, you might have some immune suppression on board. And we have noticed in our data that higher methane dysbiosis scores was a risk factor for people having certain parasitic infections. So ultimately, that's how you get there. It's, it's all about serotonin. And uh, what's that, Travis? Yeah, I, I know we're at time. I know. I'm wrapping it up. Okay, fine. We're at time. 
Next time on The Lab Report, the nutritional physical exam. Physical manifestations of nutrient insufficiencies. In kitty cats. (laughs) No, not really. In people. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. You know, earlier this week when we recorded our prior episode, mm-hmm. you brought up 99 Red Balloons and I've been singing it ever since. I'm sorry. You want me to start singing Take On Me? No. Swap that out? Please, no. I'll do it. Stop. Don't dare me. Don't do it. <laughs>